Welcome to Southern Discomfort. This is one of the most unique podcasts on the internet. Southern tales of the weird, wild, mysterious, unusual, voodoo, Voodoo. cryptids, hauntings. Are you intrigued yet? This is Southern Discomfort. Southern Discomfort. And now, your hosts, April and Christine. everybody welcome back we're back we're back i'm april and this is christine and if you're listening to us for the first time then welcome if you are returning then welcome back thank you so much thank you guys for listening to us yeah so um what is our drink du jour uh tonight we have a beer called florida man it is a double Indian pale ale, and it's from Cigar City Brewing. Bre- Brewing. Bre- there we go. How do you, how you spell that? B-R-E-W-I-N-G, yes. <laughs> yes, make the, make the person who can't pronounce that word say that word. That's okay. We'll get, we'll get through it. You think that we would learn by now. Yeah, we think that maybe you could say that, but that's okay. Um, maybe the more I say it, I'll learn it. So, And I'm just going to go off what they describe it because um, this one's really good. It's a fairly muted aroma with orange, peach, grapefruit peel, light diesel, scary hint of white grape. And so... It also has a bready honey vanilla sweetness. It merges into smooth bitterness, orange mango hops, grassy, spicy undertones, and low alcoholic warmth. So it, it, it has a light, sweet, fruity finish. It's really good. It's cool. Uh, blue can. So Florida man may have given it away. Yeah, even though it's not man, but that's okay. Right. Well... Part of it is Florida man. It, at any rate, um, that should give you a clue. But before we get into it, uh, just want to remind everybody um, to follow us on our socials. Uh, you can find us Twitter, so Disco PC, Instagram, Southern Discomfort PC, Facebook, Southern Discomfort Podcast. And YouTube, Southern Discomfort Podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe, and hit the bell. Um, also, you can email us at Southern Discomfort Podcast at gmail.com and uh, find us on Podbean, Southern Discomfort at podbean.com, or actually wherever you listen to your podcast. Um, and definitely, um, if you like what you hear, uh, leave us a review. Even if you don't like it, still leave us a review. Um, you know, we yeah. can't, we can neither uh, improve nor grow if we don't um, know what you guys like and don't like. But um, yeah, you know. I just want to add a real quick side note. And it would be helpful if it was something we could work with, something with constructive criticism, not suck we hate your voices because you're from the south we can't do anything about that we can do about that (laughs) give us something we can work with and of course 
you know, if you feel so uh, are compelled to do so, uh, a five star review is or a five star rating is always welcome too. Yes, thank you. Um, so, but I'm, you know, I'm excited about every episode that we do, but uh, I, I'm a little more excited about this one simply because it's a listener suggestion, um, and it comes from. Uh, someone who is actually from Florida and the area that we're going to be talking about tonight, which is St. Augustine. Um, She's lived in New Orleans all of her adult life, but grew up in St. Augustine and knew about this and suggested that we do it, which I'm glad she did because holy whoa. Yeah, this this is is crazy. This is a good one. Um, And, you know, good story i guess you could say not good and what happens which we'll find out but saint augustine is amazing so pretty it has a lot of spanish influence it reminds me of new orleans well and to be perfectly honest i've never been there of course uh we just got back from a trip to jacksonville and didn't make it down there but i've seen a lot of pictures so i can i can imagine what you're describing but um so saint augustine is the oldest continually inhabited european established settlement in the united states founded in 1565 which is cool because it's you know that means that it predates roanoke jamestown the Mayflower, right? Plymouth Rock, and all that. So this is way before all that. Well, well, they didn't even um, they didn't take hold. I think that's the main thing too. Not only it took hold, but it's still there, thriving, wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's situated in St. John's County in northeastern Florida, about forty miles southeast of Jacksonville, um, on a peninsula between two saltwater rivers the San Sebastian to the west and the Matanzas to the east. And on the mainland west of San Sebastian, just inland from the Atlantic coast on the intracoastal waterway. And if you're like me, I'll just go ahead and admit to this. You think that Ponce de Leon (laughs) is responsible for all any and all settlements in Florida. Well, right. that's not that's not the case. No, me as well. Like okay, <laughs> like you know, just gonna go ahead and admit that. But the this guy's name was Pedro Menendez de Aviles, and I'm sure that I butchered that. So apologies in advance. Did but he landed. <laughs> I mean, I gave it my best shot, right? Yeah, so, I can um, do. He landed near where the Bridge of Lions, um, which is what I've seen from pictures online and been told, um, you know, it it spans the Matanzas Bay, and it's just an absolute, I guess, uh, sight to see. It's literally got the lions uh, flanking each side of the bridge. And it's funny because when our listener said, you know, was talking about, we should cover this story and we were having our just an off the cuff conversation. I was about, yeah. And the bridge with the lions and she's like bridge of lions. literally. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, okay. Yeah. That one. Anyway, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. But anyway, so, you know, it's a, it's a classic, um, 
Spanish conquistador tale of uh, how they, well, I guess, can't say his last name, but Pedro <laughs> comes over and he and his army massacre the French colony that was already existing in the area. It was called Fort Caroline and they killed everyone in the settlement and they there were bodies left hanging in the trees in the aftermath and there were inscriptions on the trees that said, quote, not as Frenchmen, but as heretics. Whew. So, as you can imagine, that yeah. was quite a grisly scene. Yeah, absolutely. But, Ooh. Yeah. Well, and so that, coupled with uh, the fact that uh, Matanzas Bay and River um, is Spanish for slaughter. So... Those two things are very foreboding, you know, and I guess um, maybe even, I guess some might say foreshadowing, but definitely foreboding. Right. Um, so St. Augustine was the original uh, capital of Florida, and they actually, I found this to be super cool, was it's the where the first recorded St. Patrick's Day celebration in the United States occurred, which I guess makes sense if it's the oldest city right. in the nation. Right. You know that St. Augustine is the patron saint of brewers. <laughs> There's that word we again. Did, we did that just to make you miserable. Right. <laughs> <laughs> brewers and printers. So, also, um, I, I'm a, while I've got you interrupted, so the... <laughs> This just to kind of draw it to um, where we are. The I don't know that a lot of people know this, but the, the whole Spanish um, when Florida was under Spanish rule, it the whole the Panhandle coming out from Florida extended for all the way into Louisiana. Like it it went all the way across through Alabama, the coast of Alabama, Mississippi, and then. That's where we are, just north of where we are now is called the Felicianas because of that, because it was all owned by Spain, that little strip, and then Florida. No, that's cool. Um, I want to say that I knew that but didn't remember it, so I'm glad that you brought that up. Yeah, um, just to tie it back. So I like how you, I like what you did there. So um, uh, it is also... Um, they have an annual celebration. Uh, September 8th is their founding day. So even to this day, they have big celebrations at, on that day. Um, and apparently it's like a super big deal. Um, in 1963, during the Civil Rights Movement, it's where uh, four teenagers sat at a whites-only lunch counter and tried to order a hamburger and um, the judge jailed them and sent them to reform school. So it prompted uh, Martin Luther King to organize a march in 1964, and they did uh, sit in uh, peaceful protests. Um, they, I believe the KKK uh, came to their where they were when they were protesting and Martin Luther King was actually arrested and I, yeah. he, he spent at least a day in yes. jail there. 
Yes, he did. That's, so um, he called it the most lawless place in America. Yeah, which I didn't know that prior to doing research on this. So, um, and you know, um, our listener didn't know that either. So, found that to be super interesting too. Um, so, actually, what we're going to talk about um, happened in 1974, and this was, uh, of course, uh, very soon after the civil rights movement. And um, during the second wave of feminism, and um, it, her name is Athalia Ponzel Lindsley. Um, her uh, maiden name was actually Fetter, but she changed it. Um, and we'll get into that in just a bit about why that was. But um, she was actually officially uh, born in Cuba in 1917 and um, they think that okay so let me let me walk that back so it's documented that she was born in Cuba Cuba but they they think it's possible her mother's from Cuba they think it's possible <laughs> that her mother may have flown to the US to give birth to her in Ohio that's, but it's kind of one of those unknowns that's what is is said that she would have had to have flown back to have her if she was born in Ohio. Right. Because they were so, in Isla Pines. Yes, exactly. So um, then she had a sister who uh, was born in Cuba two years after her. Her name or was Geraldine. So um, Margarita was her mom, and she met Athelia's father in the U.S. in Florida on vacation. Um, then uh, Athelia and her sister lived in Cuba until Athelia was nine. Um, and then uh, the anti-American sentiment uh, set in, and her father, his name was Charles, uh, he was convicted of sedition, but he was pardoned and released. But as a stipulation of his pardon, they had to leave Cuba. Yeah, I didn't even know that there was an area of Cuba even I know, um, that was owned by America. And Americans, wealthy Americans live there. Yeah, so that's the thing. Um, her father is very wealthy. Um, so when they left Cuba, they actually moved to a mansion in, a, um, in the high-end area of Jacksonville, and that's where she and her sister grew up. Yeah. But um, she did uh, actually get married at age 18, but she divorced soon after, and then... Um, she and her sister Geraldine decided to move to New York City. And that's when they both changed their last name from Fetter to Ponzel because they wanted it to be more appealing um, to the modeling and acting and performing arts circuits. Her stage name. Yeah. I'm not even sure why Fetter wouldn't. I don't really understand that whole thing, but that's a story you know that's a conversation for another time but anyway that's why they changed it yeah but she was very tall thin beautiful um she appeared on the social pages of new york and she was really into like the bohemian lifestyle 
he appeared in a couple of commercials. Um, I think it was like for toothpaste and shampoo, and she even um, was in Life magazine. She was yeah. a chorus girl in an off-Broadway musical, and she had a regular spot on a game show called Winner Takes All. Yeah, that was a long-running game show, too. I tried to... See, and I'm not even familiar with it. Are you? No, I'm not, but I tried to look it up, and eat. I'm sure it didn't go all the way back to the... It would have been the 50s, but you can find some going back to the 60s and um, some videos. I know you might can find it. I just... Who am I? <laughs> I just went and didn't do a whole lot of digging, so... <laughs> Well, so that is notable, of course, but I think probably the most notable thing about her um, early adult life is the fact that she dated Joe Kennedy Jr. Right. Um, and uh, sadly, um, he died in World War II overseas, um, so they obviously did not have a chance to um, see where that relationship may have gone. Yeah, that that's a good point because her life would have been so completely different. Might have ended the same, but it would have been different. Right. Well, but so, you know, the thing of it is, is by all accounts, they were so super in love, you know, and like, um, but she was known to have dated around, like, there were other guys that she dated that were, I guess, well-known in New York City, but, of course, obviously, he was well-known, um, for, you know, in the politic realm, but, um, at any rate, sadly, um, that ended tragically, but by the time she turned 30, the modeling jobs had dried up, so she had reached I guess the end of her shelf life. Yeah, she'd aged out of those types of jobs. So she ultimately decided to move back to Jacksonville uh, for obvious reasons to be close to her mother. Um, But uh, when she moved back to Jacksonville, she did marry and divorce again. Um, And her sister by that time, Geraldine, had married and had a family and moved to Hawaii with her husband. So it was just her and her mother uh, started to become ill and she would actually become her mother's caregiver for the rest of her life, Yeah, which, you know, she didn't mind doing. Um, She uh, fit in well in Jacksonville and she belonged to many different civic and social organizations that her mom had belonged to. So like from what I read, she just took over her mother's (laughs) uh, memberships in those groups. And one of them was the daughters of the American revolution, but there were like a list of like a short list of like four or five that she belonged to. And she just um, took over. Yeah. She was definitely embedded in, in the community there. She also wrote a book, a gardening She certainly did. Um, And she uh, patented a household device, but I didn't see what that was. No, it's funny because it doesn't say, like, you read, when you read about her, it will say she patented a household device, but never says, like, what it was. Yeah. The Canoper 3000. I don't know. (laughs) Falcon 5000. I doubt that was it. But um, anyway, so. 
for work, she actually became a realtor, and she had, of course, not finished college before she left to go to New York, so that was something that she always wanted to do. So she did enroll in college courses when she moved back, but did not ever earn a degree, which um, I think that was, it was mentioned somewhere in my research that that was something, you know, that she always wanted to do, but, yeah. but never finished. And of course, we'll find out, you know, maybe one reason why that, that, that never happened. But um, uh, she wanted actually, uh, even though her life in Jacksonville was going really well, and like you said, she was well connected to the community and she was, you know, accepted and had lots of friends and, you know, didn't have any, uh, any issues with relationships with people that I came across when she was in Jacksonville, but she wanted a change. Um, so she moved with her, they sold the mansion in Jacksonville and she and her mom moved to St. Augustine and they bought this beautiful Spanish style mansion on Marine Street. Um, and you can see uh, the Matanzas River from their house. Um, it's not like a, it's not, it's not on the water, but you can see the river. Nice. And I believe, I don't know if it was there back then, but I, in 74, but I know currently there's a marina there and everything. So um, they had a large fenced in yard because she had seven dogs. I think one or two of them belonged to her mom, yeah. but she was really into um, animal welfare and rescue, and so that's, of course, why she wound up with a total of seven dogs in the house, which immediately became a point of contention for her neighbors. They didn't, um, they did not receive her well at all. They just, and to be quite right. frank, they didn't like her. They didn't even give her a chance to like her. Because they immediately said, you know, the fact that she had these loud, obnoxious, barking dogs that were off leash and this and that, which none of that actually turned out to be true. Right. Um, they were like, who do you think you are moving on our street with all these dogs? Yeah. We're not which, dog lovers. No. I don't think. <laughs> well, because. It's a um, lot. It wasn't even true that they were. They. They were rowdy. The other, yeah, some of the other neighbors on the street said they never heard on bark, and so they never saw her uh, her dogs off leash. But the neighbor that complained about it first, actually, someone had complained it on him the year prior <laughs> for his dog being off leash. <laughs> it, you know, it's, I don't know. It makes me laugh, but also at the same time, you know, you think, well, are you being petty? But uh, anyway, um, I, I don't think it became a problem until she, and I'm sure you'll get into this, until she left, like the dogs lived there and she wasn't there with them. And because I did come across that and I thought that might get, if I was her immediate neighbor, that might get to be a problem if um, these dogs were mostly left unattended and there's seven of them. Well, because, yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about that, too, about the uh, her not being in the house full-time. However, 
um, she actually either kept them in the fence yard, the garage, which I don't know about that. I don't know if it was climate controlled, but at any rate, um, I'm not judging. I'm just saying it's a little questionable. Well, she's uh, a dog lover. I'm sure she wouldn't have put them in the, maybe well, it was, maybe it's during the winter that. in South Florida or uh, North that's Florida. That's what I'm going to go with. Yeah. But um, she would actually also kennel them if she wasn't going to be there. She would send them to the kennel. Um, so, but her neighbors did not like her at all. But one of the main reasons that they didn't like her is because she had a very direct nature. Um, and she was highly opinionated. And she was outspoken. And How dare she? Would... That was the 70s. The women weren't supposed to talk. Just sit there and look pretty. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Especially a pretty tall blonde. They're like, what's oh, this yeah. mouthy lady doing? <laughs> Super uh, intimidating. Can we can we talk about that? So she was called names like a shrew, a washed up has been, <laughs> feisty, outspoken. Well, Haters. Like, yeah, hating on her because she's feisty. And look. One of the things that they said about her to insult her was that she was outspoken. What? Oh, okay. And <laughs> she was, she was a conservative feminist, a socialite, politically active, very intelligent, and very well spoken. And so, you know what else too? She that I thought of. She didn't have children, and that back then in the seventies, even you know that that was like, how dare she? be a, a woman without children and she's like mouthy and she speaks her mind and she's who is she to try to intimidate me right so you're supposed to be um, a, a mom in the kitchen kind of well, mentality that's, that's a good point because you know her the, the two families um on either side of her that we're going to talk about um the uh, mccormick's and the sanford's they were younger women, of course, and had, well, I mean, they did have teenagers, but um, one of them had younger children, too. And they just, were, like you said, they were like, who is this, right. like, uh, outspoken woman with no children? And she's, like, in her 50s. Like, what is going on with her? Like, it was very intimidating. She to didn't them, fit the norm on that street. Was, yeah. Well, right, and here's this intelligent, well-spoken woman, and they're just like, you know, basic Bettys, and, you know, (laughs) you can see why it would cause uh, them to be intimidated. Right. Um, So, both sets of neighbors, the McCormick's and the Stanford's, they complained about the barking dogs, and um, which people would later say, you know, that's crazy because Marine Street was a heavily traveled street even back then, and it had a hospital on one end. So you constantly have um, amps right, right. go into the hospital. So that really the dogs are, are yeah. what's bothering you. Um, but they actually, the wives actually made fun of her for walking her dogs in her robe. Um, <laughs> she wore a pink robe, and they would make fun of her for that. And then they would call her a stuck-up Yankee. <laughs> Which, well, she lived in Jacksonville most of her life. Right. I guess they had heard that she lived in New York and immediately. Yeah, okay. She like, yeah. like, she's a Yankee. Well, she really wasn't. Right. I mean, she was in Jacksonville. 
So they went as far as to take her to court for disturbing the peace. And she was fined $50. But she didn't um, go to her court date because she was taking care of her mother. Her mother was actually on her deathbed um, for the court date. And she didn't go... And so, uh, Rosemary McCormick, the wife, uh, petitioned the court to issue a warrant for her arrest three days before her mother died. I mean, that's where it gets petty to me. Yeah, I mean, is it that serious? Right. It's not. They were a bunch of Karens that lived on the street. Right, I called them basic Bettys, but they're Karens. They're definitely Karens. Basic Karens. Um, so, but what she did was after the hearing, like I'll show them, had all these trees cut (laughs) back between her property and theirs. Um, and she planted 10 foot tall bamboo at the corner of her driveway and it obstructed their view of like the river. I love that part. (laughs) She took this like beautiful passive aggressive approach to these people um but they went after her for that too and she had to cut them back again just crazy to Um, me but it was different then very different um was that in the hoa like you cannot put bamboo (laughs) it was on her property that anyway yeah yeah uh you know i mean crazy so Alan Stanford, her neighbor, was county manager, and um, it it was said that uh, Athalia zeroed in on him after all of this. But I will talk about that down down the line too. But in 1973, uh, after I want to say one thing, I do, I do, I I did skip over something that I do want to say. Um. just walking back to her being um, this outspoken, you know, highly opinionated woman, her husband, uh, Jinx, who's her third husband, we're going to talk about him too, um, he, he, quote, said, she simply had more courage than she had discretion. Oh, yeah. I, so, I just She just wasn't well-received because that, you know, that wouldn't have, it, women's voices weren't heard so to speak, until later. Like, she was just on the, uh, ahead of her time. She was ahead of that curve. She was. And, you know, it's just boggles the mind to me that around the time that you and I were born, it was, it was just socially unacceptable for women to have an opinion. Well, to, to voice their opinion. Right. Because, I mean, we're not that old. Anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course not. So, in 1973, after her mother died, she met another realtor. Well, I say another realtor because um, the, her second husband was a realtor, and that's how she got into the business. Well, she met um, another realtor. This is Jinx, James Lindsley. He was 62, a former mayor of St. Augustine. And County Commissioner of St. Augustine. Um, They dated for four months, and they did not live together. So this is what we were talking about a little bit earlier. Um, He lived on an island off the coast of Florida, and um, she lived uh, in the mansion on Marine Street. 
Um, it says he lived in the Lindsley House on George Street, uh, but at, that's on an island. Uh, okay. I'm not exactly sure what the name of the island is. And See, I thought that was strange, but I came across, originally I did. I was like, that's weird. Like, they don't live together, but it was said because they were trying to sell her house, and they haven't sold it yet. And then I've even heard it, heard people say that, Oh, they were both real estate agents, but they couldn't even sell their property. But I did see this later on that during that time in the seventies, it was very difficult to sell. Like the 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 mortgage rates went up to nine percent, and it was just very difficult to sell property. And then two, she had an extensive estate from her from her mother, her parents, and then that complicated things as well. Well, that's what I was going to say. These were mansions. Right. You know, like, I guess I, I should have looked up how much it uh, sold for the one in Jacksonville um, or even this one um, after the fact. But, yeah, that's a good point to you. Uh, we just don't know um, how how two realtors weren't able to move it. But um at any rate, you know, they did live apart, which I thought was unusual, too. But apparently, they were perfectly okay with it, which, I mean, okay, if that <laughs> works, then okay. Well, it was just, I guess, because it was they were newly wed, but they were older, so, and it was a different time, because um, people, uh, it wasn't uncommon for married couples to even have two separate beds in the same room. So, I guess, maybe, if you're thinking along those lines... You know, yeah, you well, didn't even sleep because she went home to. They were, they were with each other all the time except for when she went home to sleep. Is what I right. saw. Okay, but so how about this? His first wife, they didn't live together. Right. So then I thought, well, okay, well maybe this is not as um, uh, uncommon as it's as strange as it sounds to me. I mean, it does make you wonder, but. Um, his first wife actually um, did die in a car accident, and he was driving um, and lost control of the car. Um, and he was, you know, it was well known that he was a heavy drinker, and people did suspect that alcohol was involved, but because of his position uh, as county commissioner, he was never uh, given any sort of testing for alcohol. But um, did they do that at, like they do today? That was in 73. Well, prior, no, prior to 73. So I wonder if that was just yeah, common so practice. They did some sort of testing, but I don't, I don't think it's anything like the sophistication of it today. Uh, but that's a good question. They did some sort of, um, I guess, investigation into it. Um, whether, I mean, it, I don't know if it was a blood test or, you know, obviously it couldn't have been like breathalyzer or anything like that. Right. Um, I don't even, you know, I don't know when field sobriety was, um, was just, you know, developed or anything like that either. But at any rate, uh, they never looked any further into it. So it was kind of like essentially it was kind of like swept under the rug and um she passed away um they actually had a son and he died in a 
motorcycle accident. Is that um, why he so was called Jinx? That's a good question. I, I'm not sure. Um, but so as she was sort of going head to head with Stanford, and we'll talk more about that, she um, had lost weight and had become a bit disheveled looking. And they said that um, she was anxious and preoccupied with um the feud with alan sanford next door but you know that could be people just that could just be the rumor mill too you know like after all this was publicized but um they did engage in a very public feud and she initially went in on him about um a complaint to the st john's count county council about the condition of the roadways and um interestingly enough the saint augustine record would regularly regularly cover um their feud like things that would happen in these uh county meetings um and so in one of the headlines the article was titled or one of the headlines in the newspaper was titled hooray for mrs lindsley um whenever she went in on him about the roadways uh so it was kind of like the media got involved and would uh you know ultimately divide saint augustine um for or against her and it was largely against her but that one was in her favor yeah yes so, she was showing up at, at you know because the, these meetings are public she was showing it up at his meetings being loud and mouthy that's that's the thing is that she would show up and call him out in front of everybody okay hello can we say motive later on but um so he accused him also of misappropriating funds and taking equipment home for personal use which i don't know how she knew that but apparently she interviewed like former employees and stuff. yes um but she, but it was well, it was known, um, public, I guess, record that uh, his salary was double that of other county employees. So, um, in t 1973, he made $20,000 a year, which now would be $100,000 about. Right, and it was said that no one else even made within $12,000 of his salary. Right, that's so they were salaried between six and eight thousand dollars a year. Right, and they said his office had a hundred and fifty percent turnover because uh, after these interviews happened with former employees and even like I think a current employee, um, he they all said that he was very short tempered and that he was even heard joking in these meetings that heads will roll. Oh yeah, he was he was very outspoken as well, as far as he threatened her to her face. Oh, he said, oh yeah, yeah, yes he did. Said she was a vicious. She he called her over there and said, "You're a vicious woman, and I'm gonna uh, fix you." That's exactly what happened. So, um, she well, like I said, the newspaper started to side with Stanford. Um, I'll just tell this really quickly and um people 
liked Stanford because he was a good old boy um, from Atlanta. He was a Clemson graduate, and he had this beautiful wife, um, whatever, like that matters. But um, he did. So I think that was, if I'm not mistaken, that was after she had had friends over at her house. Um, they were all leaving, and he called her over, like, um, to the where they're properties met and he said you're a vicious and evil woman and one day I'm gonna fix you and um she went in to a county commission meeting and told the council what he said right (laughs) so he and then he she was I don't I didn't see this where he actually told her he was gonna kill her but she was telling them that that she feared for her life from this man that she said he's said he's gonna kill me right and so how about that did not make it onto the official meeting right. minutes when she went in and told that, but they added it later addendum. as an addendum, like after the fact. Well, yeah, because she was a woman. Mm-hmm. She was a Maori woman in the South in the 70s. Like, how dare her? How dare you come in this meeting and... With your opinions and your your um, outspoken your all your knowledge, right? right. God, somebody yeah. do something with her. You mm-hmm. know that's what they said, which is crazy. Right? Yeah, because like you said, it was a bunch of good old boys on this commission. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm that, speculating, that whole, but you know. Yeah, well, that whole um, good old boy mentality is something that uh, we will definitely uh, take a deeper dive into. But so the next thing that she went in about was the fact that he did not have an engineering degree and his job description was a uh, county engineer. And Eight. he was like, well, <laughs> what? like, what the hell? But then again, I guess, you know, this was almost 50 years ago. It was 50 years ago, and it had gotten to that fever pitch where, you know, they were going to, the two of them were respectively going to find any and everything they could about each other. And so it's actually, a it was actually a requirement of that position that he have an engineering degree, which he did not. Right. He took the test and failed it. Right. He had a degree, but he didn't have an engineering degree, but he took the civil engineering test and he failed it. But he promised that he would take it again. So, you know, that's what you're supposed to have. Like, he knew he was supposed to have this test. Well, you know that you're supposed to have an engineering degree (laughs) in a a position that you're making more than twice as much as your subordinates. Right. Okay, Okay, if you can sleep at night knowing that, then that's on you. And sign in your your name as count as counting engineer. Right. So that was another thing that she had a problem with. She wrote to the um, Florida Department of Profession and Occupational Regulations to report malpractice and ask for an investigation. And she likened Stanford to a quack practicing medicine. And um, her, her uh, you know, grievance was the fact that 
was signing off on county projects as county engineer, and he, in fact, was not an engineer. So if, if, if you want to, if you ask me, she had him on that one. Yeah, so, fair point. Absolutely. Um, she did receive a reply from the executive director stating that they pl- that Stanford um, said that he was going to retake the exam, which um, he never did. He's like, I'm not taking that again. He's like, I'm just going to tell them what they want to hear, and then they'll get off my back, and it'll be the end of it. Yeah, well. Meanwhile, I'm bullying everybody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, by all accounts, he was a bully, um, not just to Athelia, but to his um, staff. Right. But, you know, you want to talk about petty things um, even got to the point where when Athelia and Jinx were out of town on a trip. Stanford put sugar in her gas tank. And um, apparently that's problematic. I don't know. But I guess <laughs> it was back then. It was a big deal. I remember that those days. That was the thing to do. Well, even her husband, even Jinx, was suspicious of him. And he confronted him. He did. So that's so telling. When Stanford's on his roof working one day, Jinx um, confronts him, and um, this was actually, like, right before um, January 23rd, 1974, which um, we're about to discuss, but, um, so he confronted him, and then um, also the day before... um, January 22nd, actually, is the day before January January 23rd. She attended a council meeting where she um, revealed that she had been interviewing current and former employees of Stanford, um, mainly around, like, the roadways and the flooding and the pollution. And it was all around the thickness of the roads, um, which she said did not meet code. And that was part of the problem because he was signing off on these projects saying that they met code. Well, you're not even an engineer, so how would you know is what she's saying. And on January 23rd, 1974, investigators from the Florida State Board made a surprise visit to Alan Sanford's office to investigate his credentials. Mm. They did find that he was misrepresenting um, his background and um, they had a meeting with him at his office, uh, which, uh, by all accounts, didn't really seem to go all that well. Because I think he was, I think Sanford was, this is just my opinion, I think he was fully expecting for them to be like, hey, you know, just make sure you take the test, da 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 He wasn't expecting them to actually open an investigation into it. So, yeah. On a scale of 1 to 10, how mad do you think he was? I think he was probably raging. 38 pistol hot, yeah. That hot, yes. So, um, they leave his office, uh, the investigators. They go to Marine Street. They thought about stopping that evening about 5.30 p.m., um, on their way to the hotel uh, because they have to follow up with her, uh, Athelia, in a meeting to let her know their findings and what they plan to do next. But they decided 
rather than to stop at her house, they just drove by at 5.30 to see where she lives so they would know where they were going the next day. Um, and they later testified that the street was very quiet and that they did not see um, Athalia nor her neighbors at 5.30 when they drove down the street, which is going to be important for reasons you're about to find out. But um, so... Um, on this uh, January, on this day, um, she, Athalia, and Jinx spent the day together shopping in Jacksonville. This was still on the 23rd, and this was not unusual because they would take a day during the week where he would take off at lunchtime, and they would spend the afternoon together. And this particular day was the Chinese New Year, and Athalia wanted to have a customary Chinese dinner in the grocery stores in St. Augustine did not have certain ingredients that she needed um, to pre prepare the food for their dinner. So that's why they had gone down there. Um, and uh, they also, I think, went dress shopping, um, something like that. Well, um, on this evening of the 23rd, um, Athalia was, well, they had actually, they had returned from um, Jacksonville and he had dropped her off at her house or either she left his house and they were going to meet back up later um, for dinner, but she was going to take care of the dogs and she was going to get things in order and um, that evening she actually w was found um, hacked to death on her front steps. She had... Uh, she had been um, slashed nine times with a machete and practically decapitated in broad daylight. That's that's crazy. That's a crazy sight so for anybody who to see. Yeah, they said there was one piece of sinew holding her head onto her body. So essentially, that means tissue, like skin tissue, right? Yes. Okay. So well, connected tissue. Okay, so for all intents and purposes, she was beheaded. I mean, yes, like, yes. So, um, eyewitnesses had actually. Okay, so I've got it now. She, they were at his office after their outing to Jacksonville, and at five thirty-five p.m. Now, again, this is. Five minutes after the investigators drove down her street, she is seen leaving Jinx's office, and go, she was going home to check on her dogs, and um, he was actually uh, going to run a couple of other errands before they got together for dinner later that night, and was seen by eyewitnesses, too. So, at 6.05, which is, uh, let's see, so it happened somewhere between... 5.35 and 6.08 or 6.10 p.m. Um, but he was seen at 6.05 uh, by his neighbor, um, which is important. For Who, Jinx or? Later. Yeah, Jinx was seen at 6.05 by his neighbor. Well, that's important because, you know, obviously, you know, they're going to automatically think that it's, it's the husband or the yeah. significant other because that's just what what 
that's just the first p- person you go to. Well, anyway. Because he had a temper, it was said. Yeah. Well, he had a temper. He had a drinking problem. He, um, you know. Took fifty. Took $50. Yes, he did. He, uh, she had given him on one occasion, she told her sister Geraldine that she had given him a $50 check to go to the bank to deposit for her. And, uh, she found out later that he, in fact, did not deposit it, but he cashed it and he kept the money and he never told her that that's what he did. Yeah. So he had a tendency to be untrustworthy too, right? Because she caught, she told her sister, which you know that's what sisters do. He's a le- a liar and a leech. Yeah, like this guy is not good for you. Like, but does that make him a murderer? You know, right? Probably we don't know. Right? Not probably it does. Probably not. I, I don't know. Right? We don't know. So at six oh eight p.m. Locke McCormick, who is the college-age son of the other neighbors, you know, Stanford's on one side, McCormick's on the other of Athalia. Locke McCormick, he's 18 years old, home from college. He reports having heard loud uh, thwacking noises and says that he saw a man wearing a white shirt and dark pants making swinging motions. And then slowly walked away toward the Stanford's house. And he actually initially said the words to the police on that arrived first to the scene that he had seen Mr. Stanford wailing on Athalia. Yeah, that was his. And that's important to me because that's the first thing that he said. Like, that's his initial thoughts, you know, before anyone talked to him, before anything else. Like, that was initially what he first said that's the first thing he said which unfortunately he later recanted it but that is the first thing he said to police that's a fact so um he uh also said that she was sprawled out on the front steps and her dress was hiked up and her broken pearls um were all over the place and there was blood everywhere and it was going up the walls and like you said her head was attached by only a thin layer of skin and there was blood pooling at the bottom of the steps and that she had visible defensive um wounds on her arms and she had uh severed fingers too because initially they they thought she had fallen out of a window what? Yeah, they because I when they saw this site in broad daylight, that's this is what this is my thinking, my line of thinking. But when they, they saw this site, uh, she's all bloody and just um, just out there. They thought she had fallen out of a window. I guess that's where they thought all this blood was. But once they walked up to and saw saw the scene, they realized that she had been like. Decap- basically decapitated but she also had a a little bird that she was that she was um nursing Rehabbing. back to health yes and she would take it on little walks and she had taken this bird on a walk before this happened and they well, found that's really depressing they found yeah it was like all um i think he had a broken leg or but anyway either way she was nursing this little bird and 
that was one thing that the police stated later was that there wasn't anything. There was no signs of robbery. Nothing was stolen. Nothing was taken. But the cage that this bird was um, stayed in was all smashed up. So that, to me, is indicative of rage. It's like, oh, you love this bird? Well, I'm going to destroy this. And then they, they found feathers by her body, and then they found the bird later. They killed the little bird. Well, that's terrible. Yeah, not horrible. So, yeah, she definitely was an all-around animal lover. And then the blood trail, well, I mean, I'm sure you'll get into another police, the crime scene, but the blood trail led to uh, Stanford's house. It did, but, you know, like you're saying, the the scene, I didn't know that about the bird, which is disturbing, like, also, but um, one person even said that she looked like a bloody, broken doll laying on the front steps, so I thought that was... Yeah, pretty pretty telling, but um, her uh, well, the coroner determined the cause of death was almost complete decapitation, obviously, and um, he is quoted as having said one single clean blow from the back of the head down from the skull and neck bone and through the main artery was the main cause of death. And he testified um, to the fact that the murder weapon was a machete because it's the only thing that that could cause that type of, uh, I guess, uh, mortal wound. Machetes are very commonly used in Florida to cut back trees and brush. Apparently, everybody has one. And um, Stanford had reportedly checked one out from the county, too, but claimed that he had returned it. Um, And there was no weapon uh, found at the scene, but uh, her grocery bag was on the floor, and her keys were in the back door lock. Um, But uh, so... I guess uh, she had been covered initially by detectives when they arrived or either the um, ambulance uh, attendants by a white sheet that had turned completely red from blood. And like you said, blood was tracked in the yard towards the Stanford's house. And then also one of the first things that they did when they got there, they hosed all the blood away. So that's the thing. They the p- police first disturbed the crime scene because they were walking all in the blood, and then they told the ambulance attendants they to hose down the front steps after they took photos. Um, I guess because they were like, "Well, we took pictures, so we're you know we're good." But you know, so the thing about that is, is that St. Augustine had no forensic right. specialists or department or like that in 1974. And people say that they just weren't equipped to handle right. um, this type of, I mean, I guess hysteria and trauma or yeah. murder in broad daylight. Uh, yeah, of course. Like this is that's horrific. You know, Marine Street, that was like one of the biggest um, things about it. In fact, one of the books is called called Bloody Sunset in St. Augustine. So, and that's why 
So what do you know? Old Stanford drives it, pulls into his driveway, um, and is told by police that she was murdered. And the first question he asks is, "Quote: Was she shot or was she cut?" This guy. Okay, like, can we just acknowledge that for a minute? Right. So he claimed, you know, of course, police had questions, and he claimed that he came home um, after work from the meeting that wrapped at 5.30 with the investigators, changed his clothes, downed a drink, and went back to his office. Okay. To get a protractor? Yeah, he had to go get a protractor. In a book. Are you kidding me? For important work that he had to do that evening. Engineer. He had to do some engineering work with his protractor. Yeah. Or whatever it was. I'm not sure what it was. He claimed that he went back to his office to finish work by 540 and that he was back at his office by 550. He said there were no, that there were witnesses to this but could never produce any. And there's also the fact that blood was found on a pole in in the driveway at work where he always parked. Right. So how is... Okay, and I can't remember. They typed it, right? Because they didn't... From what I gathered is they didn't identify it conclusively as Athelia's blood, but it was typed as her blood? It was. Yeah. yeah, it was typed as her blood. The machete and a white shirt and dark pants were found when a uh, when the town drunk Dewey um, recovered them in a marsh near the river, and also wrapped in a baby diaper was a watch um, and a belt. Uh, a belt. That's what it was. Right, um, right after they had just put out an, a reward for it. During the trial, during the trial, they're like, well, we need these items, so we're going to put out a reward, and it's like day of, next day, they find these items, and the baby diaper was significant because it had paint on it, and this was um, said to have been actually um, what Stanford used to, allegedly, used to um, to clean up because he grabbed it from their shop, which the paint they had the paint in the shop, and then there they had a three-year-old that they kept. The mother kept calling baby, my baby, my baby, and 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 also right after that during the investigation, the day of. If you were to believe that there's some rando down Marine, go you know walking down Marine Street and is gonna, you know, just start attacking Athelia with a machete nine times. So much so that it, she's basically de- decapitated. But same day, uh, Stanford's wife and daughter, or daughters at the time, they were out back in the yard, like not even 30 minutes later. Not worried yeah. about, like, stay inside, lock your doors. They were just nonchalant, walking around, no big deal. We're not even worried. Yeah, that's very... Uh, that's pretty telling to very- yeah, it is telling. So the watch that was found, a jeweler verified the serial number on the watch, and it matched one that he had actually sold and recently repaired for Stanford. And the clothes 
We're Stanford size, and like you said, the Stanford's had a toddler recently potty trained, um, which, you know, the paint stained diaper. And so if he had left at 540, okay, so remember I said the investigators that he had just met with at his office were going down Marine Street at 535 during traffic. If he left at 540, he literally would have passed them on his way. And what did they say? The street was empty and there were no people around. So just want to like. Right. To drive that point just home. Just want to. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, uh, Locke McCormick later recanted his statement, um, which never made it onto the police report. Um, but in 19, in February of 1974, Stanford was arrested and his bail was set at $20,000. And the judge was the same judge that sentenced the St. Augustine Four to jail and reform school and removed the bail so he could get out. Yeah, and I think I remember reading that they had, he had... (laughs) You know, today you do a GoFundMe, but he had a fundraiser, and people in the town, the community was they were coming together, pitching in, and paying for his legal fees that had mounted. And he, um, surprisingly, that was one thing that was also said was, what was he doing with all this money with this this exorbitant salary that he had? Because maybe he didn't manage his money right, but he didn't have the money to have to pay for his legal. Council. Right. It was a GoFundMe of the mid-1970s. Yeah. With his big, fat salary. Yeah. Um, I, I make all this money, but hello, people of the community. And they did. Like, there were a lot of people who did not believe that he he did this, and, and maybe he didn't, but it's just not looking too good for Stanford. Well, and so, you know, the other thing is, the fact that the criminal defense attorney that was hired was editor, reporter, and an executive for the Associated Press. Okay, so like you have a big wig um, media. Um, well, I take that back. He hired a. That's not true. He hired a criminal defense attorney that the editor, reporter, and executive for the AP paid the retainer for the attorney and um he had been suspended from the county and like you said he received gofundme help and money from their church trinity episcopal um and the assistant district attorney asked to move the trial and um that was denied so it stayed in st john's county um also, a motion to suppress evidence that was taken from um, Sanford's home uh, with a warrant was the shovel, the work clothes, concrete blocks, and a napkin with blood on it. And then that was also uh, thrown out, too. Yeah. I can't help um, but wonder if because maybe they thought that... This was a good riddance. You know, some people, the community, because she was a, a outspoken woman of the day, and maybe that's why 
a lot of these decisions were made. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, aside from the evidence found in the marsh and aside from the uh, physical evidence taken from his home, you know, what about the flipping blood trail leading to his house? Like, I mean, I know that doesn't prove anything because, unfortunately, in 1974 there was no dna testing but as you said earlier her blood was typed um to the murder weapon and her hair was the same type of hair so they matched they typed the blood and they matched the hair so like you know what what more do you need in 1974 is my question Right, because at first I thought, well, maybe this would be a good um, opportunity for a husband who who was, because they they did have, um, by some accounts, they had a rocky marriage even in the beginning, and he was said to have a temper, and then she did say these things about he was a a liar and a leech, so maybe if... He, um, the maybe her husband Jinx thought this is an um an opportunity because everyone knows everyone in the community certainly on the street knows that she has beef with her neighbor Sanford. So at first I was thinking this is an opportunity and maybe he just as a red herring led the blood trail. It could have been Jinx and he led the blood trail to Stanford, but you said he alibied out, so that was pretty strong yep. and solid. So there's Crazy. that, and also. You know, we said his name was Jinx, but if this is the case, like, he's very, very unlucky because that means that's three people that he's had been very close to in his life. relationships, yeah. That died. Well, not with his son, but... Right. Close relationships. Um, Well, no, it's true. And um, what's really extremely unfortunate is that he what he did alibi out and alan stanford was the only real suspect and he was acquitted of her murder so yeah um in the end uh you know it was a small town um with that uh good old boy mentality and she was characterized as a hysterical defiant antagonistic woman and right unfortunately that was the end of it and he did end up i believe i'll have to go back and look but he did end up sanford did end up moving um away from saint augustine i believe to one of the carolinas or virginia i'm not sure i have to look back into that but um we do fully plan to do a bonus episode and we're going to deep dive into a lot of these different things that we've sort of touched on as far as culpability and definitely hope you guys will join us for that too. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thank thank you guys for listening. Yeah, thank you guys and definitely there will be more to come. Yeah, and remember to keep one eye open because you never know what you might see. You've been listening to Southern Discomfort with April and Christine. 
As you can tell, this is one of the most unique podcasts on the internet. So we want you to be able to reach out to us. Send emails to Southern Discomfort Podcast at gmail.com. On Facebook, it's Southern Discomfort Podcast. And on Instagram, it's Southern Discomfort PC. And for shows, visit Southern And this podcast can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. Till next time, keep one eye open because you never know what you might see. This is Southern Discomfort. Signing off.